We are in the third section of the first division. So this is walking in the light with Yahweh. And in this third section, we are introduced to the second condition. The second condition for walking in the light is being obedient. This is chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. In this section, John develops the second condition. That those who walk in the light with Yahweh are obedient to his commands. This section contains three claims of knowing Yahweh expressed by the participle, the one who says, at the beginning of 1 John chapter 2, verse 4, verse 6, and verse 9. These participles reflect indirectly the claims of the opponents. Each claim is followed by the evidence that must be seen in the life of the person who is making the claim in order for the claim to be true. This section makes a distinction between those who make claims about knowing Yahweh and those who truly know him. In the first section of You Must Renounce Sin, John presented three false claims that the the false teachers were giving. And then he was saying, no, 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 that's a false claim because here's the correct claim. Now, as he is talking about being obedient, he's presenting three claims that are not false, but just three claims that the, the false teachers are claiming. Okay, so this time what they're saying, there's nothing theological with what they're saying, or there's nothing theologically wrong with what they're saying. He's just saying, but if you make that claim, you must back it up with fruit. And I don't believe that you have the fruit to back that claim up. So in each one of these places, the claim is true. The one who says, I know him. The one who says, I, he abides in him. The one who says, he is in the light. There's nothing wrong with those claims, but John is going to say, if you say you know him, you must be obedient. If you say you abide in him, you must live as Jesus did. If you say that you are in the light, you must love your brother and sister. So there must be fruit of obedience, living like Christ, and loving your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's what John's going to deal with in this section. And so all three of these, obedient, walking like Jesus, because he was obedient to the Father, and loving your brothers and sisters, love is the command, is all about being obedient. And so that's the focus here, is first you must renounce sin, the previous section, that's been dealt with. Therefore, now that you've renounced sin, I confess my sins and I accept Christ as my Savior, now we expect fruit. Now we expect obedience. Obedience is not necessary for salvation, but salvation should produce fruit of obedience. This is the point that James is making. Like, okay, yes, you're right. You don't, faith is, works is not necessary for salvation, but faith should produce works. And that's the next thing that John is talking about. First, renounce sin. Now you must be obedient. So chapter 2, verse 3. Now by this we know that we have come to know God. If we keep his commandments... The one who says, I have come to know God, and yet does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in such a person. But whoever obeys his word, truly in this person, the love of God has been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. And the one who says he resides in God ought to himself um, walk just as Jesus walked. Verse 3, we come to the first statement where he introduces, now this we know, now by this we know that we have come to know God, if we keep his commandments. So that's his introductory statement. 
we know that we know God if we keep his commandments. Keeping his commandments is evidence of knowing God. Now this goes back to John chapter 14. In the upper room discourse, John 13 through 16 is all about Jesus talking in the upper room before he died on the cross. John has the longest record of Jesus' conversation in the upper room of all the Gospels. And it's a very um, in-depth, complicated passage, and it really is all about obedience. And Jesus makes it clear that I will, if you remain in me, I'll remain in you. And there's a, a, the whole emphasis of obedience. And in there he says, the only time that he ever gives us permission, the only, sorry, the only time that he calls us friend is when we're obedient. It's the only time that Jesus ever calls us friend. And he says this in chapter 14, if you love me, you will obey the Father. And if you obey the Father, then I will go to the Father to reveal more of himself to you. And then you are to obey that revelation. And if you obey him, if you love him, you'll obey him. And it creates a cyclical pattern. You have what you know about God, now obey it. When you obey, you prove yourself as well done, good and faithful servant. And then God allows more to be revealed of himself to you, giving you more to be responsible for. And therefore, if you truly love him and love what has been revealed to him, then you'll be obedient to that because you love him. And then you just keep growing. That's how growth is, right? The, the more that we're loving to people and a obedience to God, love thy neighbor and they love your neighbor looks like this, not stealing from them, not lying to them, not um, murdering them. That's my love language, okay? And, um, and the more you do that, the deeper that people trust you. The more vulnerable they'll become, the more that they'll trust you, the deeper your intimacy becomes with them, and then they open up even more, and then you're, you're loving and obedient to that. What has been given to you, you treat it as sacred, and then the same thing. And that's all Jesus is saying, is that just like every relationship you have is built on, I'm going to trust you with a little bit, you hold that sacred, and you love me with what I've given to you, and therefore I can trust you more with more, and then we just gradually build that in a cyclical. And that's what Jesus is saying. This is how it works. So if you say that you know him, then you're going to be obedient, and you're going to keep his commands. First claim, the one who says, I have come to know God, and yet does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. If you are not keeping his commandments, you're a liar. You're a liar. Because you say you know him, but you're not obedient. It's like saying, I have a really intimate relationship with my wife, but at the same time, I'm physically beating her and verbally abusing her. And everybody would look at that and say, there's no way. There's no way, right? There's just no way. And so God is saying, if you're not loving God and you're not loving others, and the way that God laid it out in the Ten Commandments, what love looks like, and through the greater sense of the law, then there's just no way that you can say you know God as you're constantly rebelling against them. Samuel said this in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, that obedience is greater than sacrifice, and obedience is greater than worship. But whoever obeys his word, truly in this person the love of God has been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. 
So the one who says they know Yahweh and then disobeys everything Jesus said they must do in order to have a relationship with him, if one says it, then they do not really know God. John is not saying that Yahweh demands perfection. So he says that the love of God has been perfected. Not that you are perfect, but that God perfects his love in you. And that perfected is the idea of becoming more and more like Christ. He doesn't say he automatically makes you perfect, or he doesn't automatically make God's love perfect in you. He's perfecting you. And it becomes perfected over time. And so what he's saying is, the more you love God, then God will perfect his love in you for other people. He'll perfect it in you for other people. And the beauty of this is then over time, it will become less and less of you trying to grit your teeth and do it, and more and more of the Spirit working through you. Because the flesh is weak, but the Spirit is willing. The Spirit is willing. Now, we talked about this already in the first section. Nowhere does John ever say, you must do this perfectly. He would never ever say that you must confess your sins, that we're covered in the blood of Jesus Christ, and we have an advocate in Jesus Christ if he expected you to be perfect. If he expected to be perfect, then you don't need to confess your sins. You don't need to go to Jesus as an advocate. The blood is just enough. The blood makes you perfect. It gives you the ability to be perfect, and you're done. He's not requiring perfection. What he's requiring is a relationship, a pursuit, an obedience, a going to him and seeking him. The The goal is to strive to obey Yahweh. When we fail, we repent and confess our sins. What John is specifically warning against is a warm and fuzzy feeling of emotional worship before God. Is there anything wrong with emotions? Heck no. Should an obedience to God and a relationship with God produce emotions in your life? Yes. Okay. However, is your knowing God based on what you're feeling in the moment? No. Because we know how quickly our emotions change. There are many, many, many times that people have felt very emotionally connected on high mountaintops, right? And they, this, um, they feel really good about what they're doing, but they're not really in alignment with God. People look at them and say, your life is not obedient, but they had an incredible singing heart moment at church or something made them feel really good as they did it. And we know that lots of people in the world feel really good about really jacked up evil things when they're doing them. If salvation and knowing God is based on your emotions, we're screwed in that sense because we can have a lot of positive emotions as the result of very ungodly things. But at the same time, on the flip side, there's so many times that I have not felt emotionally connected to God. Right? There's probably a lot of people as they're being persecuted for the faith, for being committed to God, are not feeling all warm and fuzzy inside. I highly doubt that Jesus was feeling all warm and fuzzy inside when his children were crucifying him on the cross. There's lots of moments that I have not felt all warm and fuzzy. I have not felt emotionally connected. I have not felt this mountaintop experience. 
Yet in those moments, I was still doing the right thing. I was still committed to God. I was seeking him out in prayer. Many times I feel like, why aren't you responding to me? Why can't I hear your voice and your guidance? And yet everything I'm doing in that moment is trying to be obedient and seeking out his will and really truly trying to say, what do you want me to do? What's going on? Dear, dear God, help me. And so this is what John is warning against. He's warning against the subjective idea that I know him because I felt this, or I know him because I do these certain things like checklists at church. I work, work um, I just sing songs, and, and I'm faithful attender of church and that kind of stuff. What he's saying is there needs to be fruit. There needs to be fruit. Is your fruit supposed to be the same amount of my fruit? Does your fruit produce in the exact same area and the exact same fruit as mine? Does it produce at the same growth rate as mine? No, right? We're all in different places. And there might be places in your life that your fruit is way more abundant than mine. And you're, you're, you're producing it more frequently than I am. But there could be other areas in my life where my fruit is better than in that area than your area in that life. And so... And there just could be places where you're just further along in your walk with God. And overall, you have been more sanctified, and I've got a, few, a lot more ways to go. The question is not how much fruit you're producing. The question is, are you moving towards God? Are you moving towards God? Remember the parable. Well, actually, it wasn't a parable. It was a real-life scenario that Jesus was watching in the temple. <clears throat> but the, the, the Pharisee was praying his heart out to God, right? Really emotionally feeling it totally connected to God in his mind and he's praying like thank God that I'm not like those people over there who sin and do this kind of stuff and and he was praying to God and he felt so close to God and then Jesus looked at the tax collector and said that man is closer to God that man has more faith than the Pharisee because he was beating his chest and saying woe is me a wretched man I, I don't deserve this. please God save me I want to know you and, and that's the difference and I use this illustration with my students. If God is way, way over there on off set, so to speak, or off stage, and you have somebody who's all the way over there to the right, close to the edge of the stage, and they're faced away from God and moving a certain direction, but then you have somebody who's over there completely on the opposite side of the stage, left stage, and they're facing God and they're moving towards God, the question is who knows God better? And the answer is the one who's moving towards him. The one who's moving towards him. The one may have had more experiences because they were really close at one time. They may know more about God, but only one is more intimately oriented towards God, moving closer to God, and then the right. And that's what God cares about. He doesn't care about where you are physically, only are you turned towards him and leaning into him and pursuing him. This is what John is saying. That kind of person wants to obey God. They want to please Him. They want to make Him happy. Just like people who love each other want to he he please each other. They want to serve them. <clears throat> John's point is that our personal experiential knowledge of God will affect the way that we live. And the way we live obediently or disobediently will reveal how well we really know God. Yes, I'm a Christian because I logically am convinced through rational means that he is legit. But I'm also a Christian because I have experienced him. And both of these things drive me deeper into relationship with God. 
The more I logically and rationally pursue him, the more I get to know of who he is and the complexity of his nature. But the more I have an experiences with him, the more I get to know him relationally and intimately. And those things keep wanting me to pursue him more and more. And then as I learn more about him, I learn what he requires of me, and I can't help one to love in return. This is the point that Deuteronomy is making. When Moses gets up before the people and he says, you are to love him with all your heart, with all your life, and with all your everything, he makes this point. You stubborn, wicked generation that came before us, you died in the wilderness. You, you knew him, you saw him, you experienced him, but you rebelled against him. And every single time God came down on you, you'd be like, oh, okay, we're committed to you, God, yes. And that was because you were either afraid of being punished, and that's why you obeyed him, or you wanted a reward from him, and that's why you obeyed him. And John turns, sorry, Moses turns to the current generation that stand before him right before they go to the promised land, and he says, learn the mistakes of your parents. God wants you to obey him because you love him. Not for a reward, not to escape a punishment, but because you love him. Because you're so blown away by this God who delivered you from slavery and then took care of you despite all your disobedience that you can't help want to love that God. And this is what John is saying. You are so blown away by this God who died on the cross for you and pursued you despite how rebellious and sinful you are that you can't help but want to love him in return. We love people for far less than that. People give you lots of money for something or they save you from being hit by a bus and all of a sudden you're like so thankful and so appreciative. And, and John is saying, how much more than for the Savior of the universe? How much more than for the Savior of the universe? And so this is the first claim. You know him, be obedient. Second claim. Verse 6, the one who says that he resides in God ought himself to walk just as Jesus walked. If you say that you abide in him, then walk as he did. So this is the second claim. Now, residing kind of communicates a, a, a deeper, more permanence. Okay, so you, one is you know him. That communicates an idea of a relationship and uh, knowing things about him and knowing him personally. But residing communicates more of a deeper, rootedness, a dwelling in somebody, hanging out with them on a regular basis, actually being a part of them, actually the idea of becoming more and more like one flesh and, 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 and united together where you are in sync with each other. And so John is saying, therefore, if you say that you reside in him or you abide in him, that you remain in him, this is Jesus, remain in me and I'll remain in you, then you should be walking as Jesus did. You, you should be in sync with him, walking in his footsteps. You can't say that you're in Christ, you're residing in Christ, you're abiding in Christ, and you're completely out of sync with him. Your steps are not in rhythm. Your steps are not landing in his footsteps and that kind of stuff. And then say, yeah, I'm in him. I'm obedient. You, you just can't say that. This is what John is arguing, that this knowing him requires a walking with Christ. Back in the 80s, going into the 90s, 
and I may be a little bit wrong on that timing because everything's blurring together now. There was this famous, like, what would Jesus do bracelets, right? And, and that's kind of the idea here. What would Christ do? If I want to abide in him, then how do I line my footsteps up with him? How do I align my words up with him? How do I align my thoughts up with him? How do I align my will with him? Because in the garden, Jesus made it very clear. In here, I don't want to die, God. But ultimately, I want your will more than my will. And I want to walk in your path. And so Jesus obeyed. Jesus modeled, if you love him, you will obey him. And Jesus says, everything in my flesh doesn't want to suffer one of the worst deaths that humans have ever come up with. But everything else in me, and I don't, don't ask me what percentage that is, it doesn't matter, and this is a lack of vocabulary, but every other part of me says, but I want what you want more than anything. And he proved it by walking and the commands of God to the point of death. His obedience to God killed him. But his obedience to God deepened and kept a relationship with God, an intimacy with him, and ultimately got him vindicated in the words of Peter, where God raised him from the dead and put him at his right side. And now we can all be called children of God. No matter how difficult, no matter how taxing, ultimately the burden and the yoke that God is going to give you is far less than whatever tax you're going to pay, for lack of a better phrase. And it's going to produce a greater life and a greater hope than anything that you could ever do on your own. And the question is, do you trust me? Because if you love me, trust me, then be obedient, right? The famous song, trust and obey, for there is no other way to be found in Christ Jesus than to trust and obey. And there's truth to that. It doesn't say trust and obey to get saved. It says trust and obey to be found in Christ, to be residing in, to be abiding in him. John moves deeper from knowing God to actually residing. This communicates perseverance. This communicates perseverance. And residing or abiding is continual action. And that's what John is communicating here. And James and Peter and Paul and Jude are all going to make the argument that the true mark of the believer is perseverance. Nowhere does Paul or any of these people say the true mark of the believer is the one who runs the race perfectly. Nowhere do they say the true believer is the one who never falls down. The true believer is not the one who never gets off the path a little bit and stumbles. The true believer is not the one who did it so easily, like they were a leaf on the wind, just floating through the cross-country track. Okay? It says the true believer is the one who perseveres at the end. And, and Paul even uses the analogy of beating his body and honing it in, and, and pain and turmoil. And, and, and if you've ever watched, he uses a race a lot to communicate the faith. And if you ever watch people in a race, especially like a, a cross-country one, watch them cross the finish line. Some of you might have done it. I had a roommate back in college who always tried to get me to join cross-country. And I would go to his meets and watch him every once in a while. 
and he would cross the line, the finish line, and he had like noodle legs and stuff. You ever seen that? And he was like sweating, and the pain, the look on his face was the most incredible look of misery and torment that I've ever seen. And afterwards, I said, "That is the worst campaign poster I have ever seen." Like, you're trying to get me to join this, and that look on your face is not saying, come, come, join me. This is so fun. He's like, but it's so rewarding. Like, yeah, I'll trust you. I'll believe you. Because for runners, my only question is, why? But that's the point, and that's the Christian life. But the difference is, unlike you who say, trust me, there's nothing like breaking through the wall, and there's nothing like your personal best, and there's nothing like that feeling of accomplishment. Now, deep down inside, I know that there's truth to that. But on an emotional level, I'm like, that face doesn't look like it. The difference is, you're not God, and this is. And there's heaven who waits me in this race, um, not just a personal best. And there's, a, there's an internal relationship and an intimacy of being with God. And so this is the prize that John holds out. And in the Revelation study, when we went through the seven churches, how many times did God say, persevere and I will offer you the crown of victory persevere and I will give you life eternal persevere and I will give you joy complete okay this this is what he has to offer you this is what he has to offer you and I know that there's a really cool feeling and all that I'm just messing kind of Um, (laughs) because I've experienced in different other areas of life we've all experienced that in other areas of life that sense of turmoil and struggling and angst and yet then you accomplish what you're struggling through and then you have this incredible sense of fulfillment this incredible sense of joy and there's a sense of like wow this that was worth it that was worth it and this is what john is saying yes it will not always be the false teachers want ease the american dream just comfort ease fast food microwave right instant access cable television at your fingertips we want things quick and easy instant gratification and paul is saying it will not always be that and that's what the false teachers are offering instant gratification but that doesn't produce long-term fruit dear friends i'm not writing a new commandment to you but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning the old commandment is the word that you have already heard On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light, and then he goes on to the next claim. So he pauses a little bit here, and he begins to explain what he means by this commandment of obedience. What does it mean to obey and reside in God? And he's going to go into this probably because John has been accused of giving a new command. Probably somewhere somebody has said, you're giving a brand new command, something that did not exist in the law. This might actually be appealing to the Jewish audience, where they're saying, whoa, wait a minute, this is different. This Christ thing is different. And, And so he appeals to that. So he starts off by saying, I'm not writing to you new commandment, but an old commandment, which you've had from the beginning. This operates on two different levels. The old commandment is the word that you've already heard. This is the Mosaic covenant. This commandment that I'm talking about 
is the very same commandment. It goes all the way back to Moses. All the way back to the Moses. Now remember, for the Jew, the highest authority on earth other than God is Moses. He is the law giver. He is the giver of the tabernacle. He is the giver of the sacrificial system. He was chosen by God like a king to rule, lead the people. He was also a prophet who spoke the will of God to the people. And he was also a priest because he was a Levite. He carried all three offices, ruler over the people, word of God from Yahweh to the people, prophet, and a priest who could sacrifice and atone for their sins. And he gave him the Mosaic law. So for the Jew, everything goes back to Moses. And rightfully so. Because if Christ truly is in God and is God, then what he's saying should align with Moses who spoke the words of God. And this is the whole argument between the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees would say, who do you say you are for saying this? Like Moses said this. Who do you think you are for saying this? And this is why Jesus says, I am. I'm the one that spoke to Moses. I'm the one that told him all this. That's why my authority is greater than his. Not that my authority contradicts Moses, but that my authority is greater than his because I spoke to him and reveal it to him. Therefore, I am the better interpreter of what Moses spoke. And this is why Jesus says over and over again, you've heard it said, but I say. The Pharisees have taken upon themselves to interpret the words of Moses. And they've told you this. But I say, I am interpreting this way. And that's why he said things like, I am Lord the Sabbath, which is a sign of the Mosaic Covenant. Because I am the Lord of the entire covenant. I'm going to pause here and I want to show you something. The Mosaic Covenant is broken into three sections. The covenant is actually sometimes referred to the Jews as the law, but that's not really, the, the Mosaic Covenant was not just the law. There were three parts of the Mosaic Covenant. The first part was the law, the actual law itself. What was the purpose of the law? The law was broken into three second sections. There was the essence of the law, which was love Yahweh and love others. Deuteronomy 6.4, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your life, and all your everything. And then Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. That was the entirety of the law. That's all the command. There were only two commandments and the entire law. And it was to love God and love others. What does that actually look like? Right? Everybody's definition of love is different. Some people think love is cutting each other or slapping each other around, or mocking each other, making fun of them, or, or doing drugs with each other, that kind of stuff, right? Everybody has this weird, twisted sense of love. What it is, is then we get to the Ten Commandments, or the Bible calls it the words. And the Ten Commandments say, this is what love looks like. How do you love God? Do not have other gods before him. Have no other idols. Keep the Sabbath. Okay, that kind of stuff. What does it mean to love other people? Do not murder them. Do not steal from them. Do not covet from them, right? Those kind of things. These are 10 general ways of loving people. Very real, concrete things. So that was the, the words, the Ten Commandments. Then the third part was the civil law. 
The civil law were court scenarios. So if your neighbor's donkey comes into your yard and you have a hole in your yard and it falls in and breaks its leg, then what does it mean to love your neighbor? You love them by paying for the medical bills of the donkey or giving up your donkey during that time or whatever. So modern day equivalent of this, we don't have donkeys wandering around in our neighborhoods. The modern day equivalent is if your neighbor comes into your driveway with their car and they roll over a nail in your driveway and their tire gets popped, what does it mean to love them? Your driveway ruined their tire. Replace their tire, right? You, you do things. The civil court cases don't cover every possible scenario of life. It doesn't cover social media. It doesn't cover airplanes. It doesn't cover drugs. It doesn't cover lots of things. But there, there are 316 laws, civil practical applications. The, the law is, the essence is love God, love others. Well, what does that look like? The Ten Commandments. But what if, what if you have a very specific scenario like this? A donkey coming into your backyard or, or your wife is pregnant and somebody punches her in the stomach and the baby's threatened now. Like all these different scenarios of what ifs. What do you do in a practical scenario? And God gives them 316 examples of what this means so that they can learn the spirit of the law and then be able to apply that idea to other scenarios. So it's kind of like teaching your kids math having them do a whole bunch of math problems, and then saying, okay, we've practiced this so much that you should be able to approach and solve on your own any other kind of problem that you'll ever face the rest of your life that looks kind of like this. I can't give you every possible math problem that you'll ever encounter in life, but I can teach you how to do it, what the essence of that mathematical equation is, how to work it out, and give you lots of scenarios of what it looks like for that to look, work out so that you can then go off and so to speak, teach a man how to fish and he'll eat for a lifetime as opposed to just giving him a fish. And this is the law. So what was the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law was how to live righteously. How to live righteously. What does it mean to live rightly before God? This is obedience. God is love. And this is what love looks like. It's not murdering people. It's not stealing from them. It's taking care of them when they come into your yard and they get hurt. It's going out on the road and helping them when you see them. It's all these different things. And if you're doing the law, you're right before God because you're looking like Him. You're looking like Him. Does that make sense? The second part of the Mosaic Covenant was the tabernacle. The tabernacle was dwelling with Yahweh or coming into the presence of Yahweh tabernacle is now I want to be I want to know him I want to be in him I want to see him I want to be with him that kind of stuff and as sinners we're separated from God we cannot be with God because we are sinners and we can't enter the presence of a holy living God without dying and so we had this perfectly in the garden of Eden but when we sin we got kicked out of his presence and we lost that God knows that the only way we can fully come back in the presence of God it's through the death and resurrection of Christ, which leads to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which leads to our sanctification, which leads to the second coming of Jesus Christ. But until that moment, the tabernacle is the best thing. It's as close as we can get to God and be in his presence, even though our sins have not been totally and completely atoned for through Christ on the cross. And so the tabernacle is where we live with God, walk with God, and spend time with him brings us to the third part of the Mosaic Covenant, and that is the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system. 
And this is how we're cleansed. This is how we're cleansed of sin. Because God knows that you will not always be able to obey the law perfectly. And you will not always be right with God. And therefore, you won't even be able to come into the tabernacle. I mean, if your sin has cut you off from God, that you can't even come into His glorious presence and dwell with Him face to face like Adam and Eve did, then if you're not being obedient to the law, then you'd stand no chance to get anywhere even close to Him, right? To even come to Him in any kind of a way. And so the law says if you want to have any kind of connection to him, you have to obey him. But because you can't do that perfectly, then you're basically doomed. That's why you have the sacrificial system. Because the sacrificial system is where I acknowledge I can't do this. I've wronged God. The penalty for the law is death. But I love God and I want to be with him. And I'm repentant of my disobedience to him because I love him. And because I love him, I'm willing to make things right like a friendship, you apologize. And because I love him, I'm going to kill something that is incredibly important to me that I need for my survival and well-being, a lamb or an ox. And that's going to cost me a lot in order to atone for my sin so I can come into God's presence because I want to show him how much I love him, to become right again. Why am I going through all this? Here's why. We're going to talk about how these all work together, and this is important. So at the core, at the core of the Mosaic Law is the tabernacle. That is the ultimate goal. That is the ultimate point. The ultimate goal and the point and the heart of the Mosaic Covenant is to know God and be with Him and His presence and to experience Him and have life and joy to the fullest because you're with Him. That's the goal. How then... Do you get into his presence? The law. I obey the commandments of God. And that's what allows me to be in his presence. That's what allows me to be in his presence. Then I can be with him. How do I get into your house and have fellowship with you? Well, I don't come in and start cussing at you. I don't throw your food at you in your face. I don't destroy your property, right? I don't insult your family members, because if I do that, you're going to ask me to leave. And if you're strong enough, you're going to forcibly remove me, and rightfully so, right? And if you can't physically do it, you're going to call the cops, and they will extract me. Because I can't be in your presence if I'm acting like that. If I'm unloving to you, you're not going to want me around, and you're not going to allow me. And if I'm unloving enough, then eventually you'll get a court restraining order against me. I want to be in God's presence, tabernacle, therefore I obey the law. But the problem is, nobody can do that perfectly. If I live with you long enough, eventually I'm going to insult you and hurt you. Not because I want to, necessarily, but because I'm just flawed, right? We know that. We have family. <laughs> I'm going to hurt you. Even if I really love you and I really want to know you and spend time with you, eventually I'm going to mess up. And I'm going to hurt your feelings and I'm going to do things. Now I can either A, say screw that, that's your problem, which will then get me kicked out of the tabernacle. Or I can say, yeah, I'm sorry. And you might say, okay, yeah, but you still hurt my feeling and I don't really want to be around you right now, right? That's the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system is where I come in atone. And I don't just say I'm sorry, I say I'm wrong. And I don't just say I'm wrong, I do something to make it right. 
If I've destroyed your lamp by accident, then I repair it and fix it as an act of saying, you matter to me more than my financial checkbook. If I said something very insulting to you, then I work through that with you. I take the time emotionally and mentally to work through that with you. And I talk about why I said that or where, why, how did it affect you, all that kind of stuff, right? And as I go through that costly ordeal for me, and it will also cost you too because that's not exactly what you want to do on your Sunday night, right? So, and, and as we work through this, then we become right again and I can become in the presence. And so as I take the time to leave my home with a precious animal that produces food and all kinds of stuff for me and costs me a lot as I've raised it and taken care of it and that kind of stuff, and I walk the miles to the tabernacle and I go through the hours that it takes to sacrifice it and clean it and throw it on the altar and come back, then I'm showing God, this matters to me. You matter to me. I want to be in a relationship with you. That brings us to the next point. The first point was that the tabernacle is at the core. That's the center. That's all that matters. How do I get into the presence of God? I obey the law. When I can't obey the law perfectly and I'm no longer in the presence of God, then I go to the sacrificial system to make things right so I can come back in the presence of God. Everything focuses and centers on the tabernacle. But that means that the sacrificial system is the foundation of everything. Because without the sacrificial system, I have no tabernacle. Because nobody can perfectly obey the law. And the minute I don't obey the law, then death comes into my door. The relationship with God is over with, and there is nothing to atone for my sin, and I am forever excluded, forever without him. That means that the law cannot stand without the sacrificial system. That is the heart of everything. This is why the author of Hebrews says that if Christ replaces the sacrificial system, by being the atonement for sins, which the law never spoke about. It spoke about animals, and only Levitical priests could do the sacrifices, but he's not a Levite. Therefore, he is a different priestly sacrificial system than the law. And if he's a different priestly sacrificial system, then all this crumbles, and he also becomes the new law and the new dwelling of God as well. But is the law pointless? And Oh, no, because the law pointed to and taught you who Christ would be. And it got you to Christ. Because without the law, the Mosaic Covenant, I can never come to Christ. But Christ is greater than the Mosaic Covenant, as demonstrated by the fact that he was a better foundation. Therefore, he provides a better tabernacle. Therefore, he provides a, because it's heaven. And therefore, he provides a better law. It's the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Let's come to how it really connects to John. The tabernacle is walking with God. And the law is obeying the commands. And the sacrificial system is repenting. If you say you walk with God, then you will walk as he does the law. But thank God we have atonement in Christ. If you say you know God, then you obey his commands, the law. But when you can't, Thank God we have an advocate in Jesus Christ, the sacrificial system. The tabernacle is knowing God, abiding God, walking in the light. The law is obeying. And the sacrificial system is the atonement of Christ. Jesus is our advocate, someone we can go to and confess our sins. And so this is why John is saying, the command I give you is not a new commandment. 
This is the way that it's always worked from the very beginning of God's revelation through Moses to you. But then he goes on and says, but the, on the other hand, verse 8, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true to him, because the new commandment is, it looks different now. It's no longer the physical tent of a tabernacle with a pillar of fire. It's now the literal God himself, Jesus Christ, in the flesh. This is why John chapter 1 said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14 it says, And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Your Bible say dwell, but that's what tabernacle means. It tabernacled among us. Jesus is the greater tabernacle. It's still the same idea and the same concept, and, but he's the fulfillment, so therefore it's greater. And now Christ is giving you commands, but his commands match up with the law perfectly. Every command that he gave you did not look much different than the law. Maybe a lot of the civil laws look different because we're in a different time period. Yes, there are different civil laws on social media and cars and, and, and houses and corporates and that kind of stuff, but at the heart, it's still the same thing. Love God and love others. Jesus, what are the greatest commandments? And he says, what, do you, what have you been told? He says, love God and love others, right? And Jesus says, yeah, love God, and the second is like it, love others. He didn't mean love God is the most important, then love others is secondary. He meant is like it, which means they're both equal to each other. Because loving God is important, but if you don't love your neighbor, then you're not loving God either. Because those are who people, God matters, people matter to God more than anything. And so Jesus' commandments become greater, because he actually not only is the God who spoke it, therefore he is the God who can correctly interpret them, but he's also the God who can actually live it out in a way that nobody could ever live it out. Moses couldn't walk it and live it. And then the sacrificial system is the atonement. And so this is what John means by what I write to you is not an old, old commandment. This is the way that the Mosaic Covenant has always worked. But on the other hand, it is a new commandment because it has been made alive through Jesus Christ. And it goes further than what the Mosaic Law could. It accomplishes more than what the Mosaic Law could because now the Mosaic Covenant is in the flesh. And now you don't obey, abide, and the covenant, like John Paul says, that cannot give you the power nor the desire to become righteous. Now you abide in Christ and the Spirit which can give you the desire and the power to abide in Christ. Does that make sense? Any questions? I know I just rattle off a whole bunch of Old Testament stuff to you, so I want to make sure that it kind of makes sense. Verse 8. On the other hand, I'm writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you. This commandment is true in him because he is God. He is the lawgiver. He is the law author. But it's also true in you because if you're obedient in a love God sense, then you're in Him, and therefore this law is in you. And as he mentioned in verse 5, the love of God is being perfected in you. Because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Meaning that the more you abide in him and the more you pursue him and walk in him, 
the more the darkness will be passing away in you and the more the light will begin to shine. Second Peter says, I pray that the morning star would rise in your hearts. And that goes back to the second prophecy of Jesus Christ when in Numbers 24, Balaam says, Behold, I see him, but not yet. I behold him, but not near. Speaking of the future Messiah, I'll rise a morning star rising out of Jacob. The light, the light of the world, the light of the world. And so the more and more you abide in, the more you walk with him, the more you pursue him, the more you confess your sins, the more you go to Christ as your advocate, the more you cling to the atonement blood sacrifice, the more that the darkness will die in you and the more that the light will begin to shine in you. And this also further makes the point that John does not expect immediate perfection. He just expects you to be moving towards Christ in sync with Christ. And when you're not, then you confess your sins. Then you confess your sins. The third claim, verse 9, the one who says that he is in the light but still hates his fellow Christian is still in the darkness. The one who loves his fellow Christian resides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his fellow Christian is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. The NAT that I just read from says fellow Christians. Some of you are reading from the NIV, which said brothers and sisters. Some of the older translations have just brothers because that is what is in the Greek. It's just brothers. But it is understood that brothers is referring to both brothers and sisters when John is using this word. Just like if I said, hey, you guys, it refers to both male and female. Or if we say mankind or humankind or humanity, we, we understand we're referring to both male and female, both. The original audience reading this letter from John would have understood brothers as referring to both brothers and sisters and the sense of a hey you guys kind of statement. But by using the word brothers and sisters, he's communicating that these are not just anybody who is alive, male and female, but it's referring to the Christians, the ones who share the same common belief. And so that's why the NET translates as fellow Christian. So the third claim begins with a negative and states that if one is in the light of Yahweh, then they must not hate their brother, which is the opposite of love. I know a lot of people say the opposite of love is not hate, it's apathy. But the Bible doesn't agree with that. Because the opposite of love is hate. And if you're apathetic, then you automatically hate somebody. Because if you're too apathetic and you're too passive to help them when they're in need, then you actually don't care about them. You care about yourself more than them. And you might as well just hate them. Therefore, on their perspective, if they're in need and they're dying in some kind of a way and you're like, eh, I'm just kind of apathetic about it, then they're not going to be like, oh, you're just apathetic. They're going to see an absolute lack of love for them. They're going to see that you don't love them, you don't care about them, and that you're okay with them dying. And that's why the opposite of love is hate. Because apathy automatically is hatred. Because you don't care about them enough to actually love them. And that's pretty darn hateful.
We can argue all you want on the semantics of the emotions. We can argue all we want on the semantics of the emotions, but on a just logical level, it's the same thing. John is saying this, if you really truly love God and you're in the light, then you must not hate your brother. And he'll unpack this more here, but he'll also unpack it more in another section. Because why? You're still in the darkness. It's the most ultimate demonstration of God's love is God sacrificing his life for you. And you're not willing to show love to your brother, then you're in the darkness. Because the greatest revelation of God's life is when Christ became death for us. He sacrificed himself for us because he loved us so much. Therefore, if you are in Christ, abiding in him, then you should be able to demonstrate that same light. And light is love. And if you can't love, then you're in the darkness. Now remember, you're still kind of in the darkness because you're not perfect, but the light is shining more and more, and the darkness is passing away the more you pursue him. The phrases, in the light and still in the darkness, are an allusion to John three seventeen through 21. We know John three sixteen, for this is the way that God loved the world, that he gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. But keep reading. Verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world should be saved through him. The one who believes in him is not condemned, and the one who does not believe has been condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the one who is the only Son of God. Now this is the basis for judging that the light has come into the world, and that people love the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil deeds hates the light and does not come into the light, so that their deeds will not be exposed. But the one who practices the truth comes to the light so that he may be plainly evident and his deeds have been done in God. And so he makes it clear that God came into the darkness in order to die for us so that none will perish in the darkness. And then he goes on and says, for this is the basis of determining whether you believe or not. The one who has the light does not love the darkness. For the one who does evil deeds in the darkness hates the light and does not come to the light. So John's saying, if you love God, you'll love the things of God. You'll love the light of God. You'll love people of God. And if you don't do that, then you are hating the things of God. You're hating the commands of God. Therefore, you're hating the people of God because you are in the darkness. And this is what John is tapping into. This is the world. When we look at our politicians or our leaders or our CEOs of companies and, and, and when we look at the media and musicians and artists and that kind of stuff and they talk about all the world needs is love. All we need is love. Then the question is, are they actually living that out? Do they love the darkness? What, what do their lyrics say? 
What, they say all they need is love, but what are their lyrics truly saying? What is the message of the movie? What is the book trying to communicate? What, what, is, what is the advertisement pushing you towards? And then not only that, how do they live their life out? How do they live their life out? And this determines whether they're true or not. And the same thing with our leaders in the church. Same thing with the leaders in the church. John declares that our being in the light made possible through Jesus Christ's sacrificial death demands that we obey him. For John keeping Christ's commandments is equal to the commandment to love one's brother, which is what Christ did. Thus the conditions for the truth of one's claims, as shown above, are synonymous, which would make knowing Yahweh remaining in him and living in the light synonymous. For John, there is no genuine faith without these claims and conditions in one's life. Christ must be Lord of one's life to authenticate salvation. This is the evidence of grace of Yahweh accepted by faith worked out in the believer's life. So the question is, is Jesus your Savior or Jesus your Lord? And John's answer is, he must be your Lord for you to say that you abide in him and walk in him and know him. However, he can only be your Lord when he's first your Savior. We come to him first and foremost as our Savior. Without his sacrifice, I have no hope. Without a sacrifice, there's no way my heart could be transformed. Without a sacrifice, there's no way that I'll want to or have the ability to obey him. But once I embrace him and his sacrifice, then he indwells me and I know him. And then I can truly say, you are my Lord. Not my will be done, but yours. And when I cannot always do that perfectly, I say, I repent, Master. And I want to be more like you. And I go to the cross for my advocate to forgive me of my sins. Does that make sense? It's not, is he Savior or Lord? It's yes. Yes. Because if you love me, you will obey me. And that's lordship. That's lordship. If you don't obey him, then you show that you don't love him. And then John says you're in the darkness. And you do not know him and you do not obey him. So there is no room for Savior or Lord. There's no room for justification without sanctification. There's no room for justification without obedience. Sanctification and obedience and lordship will not get you salvation, but they should be the result of salvation, the fruit of salvation. And this is what John is arguing. Obey. First renounce sin, and then obey. Because if you don't obey then you're just going to naturally turn back to sin. You're going to naturally turn back to sin. Any questions? Does this make sense? I know John's very repetitious or repetitive, but that's good because we're slow learners. And, and, And the cool thing is sometimes we need to be told things in different ways, right? Sometimes people say things and you're like, ah, I don't know if I quite get that. And then they give another example. And you're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Or sometimes you're like, no, no, no. Oh, finally it clicks in. And then all the examples start making sense. And so repetition is the hallmark of Jewish literature. 